Okay, good morning everyone. Sorry for my tardiness this morning. There's a few things going on. Um, We are in chapter 15 of Proverbs, having finished 14. If anyone has any correction to that, I'm all ears, but that's where my trusty sticky note with arrow (laughs) pointed me. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, so chapter 15 continues uh, part three now of this section, A Wise Son, Wise Ways to Live. That's a nice summary. And 15... Uh, one through four are sometimes seen as a unit because three out of the four verses have to do with the mouth. So let me read through all of those and then we'll go back over them. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouths of fools pour out folly. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. Okay, so a lot to think on here, and some familiar themes. The one that is not like the others, and thus stands out, is the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. And so the, that is an overarching concept then of this section, that the reason to keep track of the answer, the tongue, the mouth, is because the Lord is present and he is watching. And of course we know he's just, he's righteous, he's good. And even as his beloved children, redeemed by Christ, he'll chastise us where we err. And that's a loving and wonderful thing that he does. It doesn't always feel loving and wonderful at the time it's happening. Uh, No discipline is fun while you're undergoing it. But afterwards you go, I'm thankful for it. And then of course, if this (laughs) as you recognize this as a pattern within yourself, you can kind of preemptively begin to rejoice because you go, well, this feels terrible, but... I know what the Lord's purpose is in this rebuke. Okay, so back then at verse 1, a soft answer turns away wrath, which is fantastic marital advice. (laughs) But of course, uh, has much broader application than that in general. That where someone is upset, you have a choice to escalate or de-escalate. And sometimes it just comes down to what do you intend to do now let what comes out of your mouth reflect what you intend to do so often we speak without intending anything that harkens back to an earlier place in Proverbs where we need to slow down 
be cautious and turn away from evil. So think before we speak is the way I think my mom put it. Uh, So think before you speak and think about what is the goal I want to accomplish. Then fashion your words to achieve that goal. If the goal isn't going to happen, fashion your words and maybe even choose silence so that you leave all possibilities or as many possibilities as you can open. So when met with wrath to answer softly can have the effect of turning wrath away. And I think that that's especially true where someone in a position of authority has felt as though they were disobeyed or has felt as though their authority had been undermined and they're angry about that. A response that is soft and a response that is um, submissive or uh, in in response that honors that position of authority uh, immediately alleviates a lot of the anger and the tension because the anger and the tension is based on you're subverting the authority structure here and then by showing no I'm not subverting it now tell me what I did wrong uh, is a way of diminishing that that anger so I'm just trying to put some concrete um, sub examples under this proverb that is just very universally true a soft answer turns away wrath but a harsh word stirs up anger and that can be true even if you're met with softness but you speak harshly all of a sudden anger can be stirred up or of course if you're met with wrath or anger and then you speak a harsh word in return more anger is stirred up everything escalates So let me just carry on and then I'll go back and see if you have any thoughts or reflections on these Proverbs. Next, verse 2, the tongue of the wise commends knowledge. So not only does it possess knowledge insofar as it possesses knowledge, but it commends and lifts up knowledge. Knowledge is worth pursuing. Knowledge is a valuable goal, and its antithesis is foolishness. So kind of wisdom recognizes wisdom. Wisdom commends wisdom. The antithesis to this is the mouths of the fools simply pouring out folly and pouring out foolishness. Not a direct one-to-one parallel there, thesis, antithesis. You don't quite see it that tight. But the contrast, just the the fools, as they open their mouth, pour out folly. Then again, the eyes of the Lord watching in every place. He's inescapable. The mantra of the unfaithful Israelites, very frequently the leaders, but not always. The mantra is some variation of the Lord doesn't see or the Lord doesn't care. Or everything's going great, so we we know that the Lord's happy with us. That kind of defense against the ever-present sight and judgment of the Lord, which is essential for us to live under. Otherwise, if we think he's not looking, you know, in the cats away, the mice will play. When we cease to be aware of the presence of God, it's suddenly second nature to fall into all kinds of sins. Verse 4 then, to round it out, a gentle tongue. So very similar, almost inclusio style with a soft answer. A gentle tongue is a tree of life. 
meditate. And a tree of life means one may eat of it and live. And so a gentle tongue not only benefits you, but benefits those around you. We've talked about this before, so I won't belabor it. That is, you do... I don't think it's too strongly to put it this way. Have a choice. Is what you say going to be life to someone or death to someone? Is it go- are you going to soften and ease whatever it is they're suffering? Or are you going to stab, heap upon, add to? Hey, are you going to speak and be a tree of life or speak and be a tree of death? And to pay attention to the tongue because the tongue is our most powerful instrument that we have. And the word, insofar as we're made in God's image and the word we speak, subordinate to his word, obviously, but the word then is the highest uh, power we have. So a gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. So a way of reading perverseness here could just easily be cruelness. So with cruelty or perverseness, um, you can break the spirit. Um, Clearly you can break your own spirit, but more in view here are the spirits of those around you, those who are hearing you. So wise words concerning the tongue and our use of the tongue. Let me pause there, see if you have any reflections or Comments. I, are we running a microphone? Our mic man is in a meeting, so we're probably not. I can try to. Uh, I can try to uh, just restate your. You want to say it? Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, this day and age, well, we're speaking to a son here, but you know, I'm thinking of younger people, and I know bullying is an issue <coughs> in our society, and uh, and I've heard it said that. Uh, a father might say, consider the source when you're bullied, you know, and be able to, to forgive, uh, relate to that person, and, and understand their circumstances. that fit in in the context of when you receive something that's harsh? Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's a good question. So I think just to take the tail end and try to work backwards a little bit, would you receive something that's harsh? your flesh is immediately going to charge to the forefront. So the first thing you want to do is be aware of that and try to silence that inner self-defense, that inner self-justification. You want to listen and you want to see if there's any merit in the charge that's being leveled against you. And as Christians, we want to have especially soft hearts toward that because the charge could come from a Christian or a pagan or anywhere. Uh, We recognize that we're sinful. And so when a rebuke comes, we should always at least give opportunity that that rebuke be taken to heart. Now, if it's groundless or mean or, um, you know, whatever else the case may be, then we want to have other considerations, but, you know, only after we've reflected on it. So I I don't know where I picked up this piece of advice, but I think it's very helpful. If you wouldn't take advice from a person, then don't take critique from that person. So that's another little chunk of wisdom. It's not my own. I just don't remember the source. And so once you've sort of 
okay, here's the criticism. Do I need to hear that? Do I need to make adjustment? Do I have something for which I need to repent? Something I need to correct? And maybe, okay, maybe to one degree or another. But if it's just a mean comment or something, you know, ask yourself, would I go to this person and seek out their advice? Do I value their opinion in the positive? And if the answer is no, then why on earth would you value their opinion in the negative? Make sense? Okay. So that's a lot of like the, the bullying per se, which you mentioned, is a negative comment that whether it has a granular truth in it or not, the whole point is to push someone down socially. That's the whole point of the bullying. And how do you respond to that internally, um, I think, in exactly the way that I just expressed. If, that, if, you don't, if you're not looking to that person for advice, don't consider their critique. And just recognize that if somebody's being mean to you just for being mean to you, you can kind of dismiss it <laughs> right off the bat. You know. Does that kind of get at your question? Probably doesn't do it full justice. but All right, anything else? Okay, so then let's jump into uh, 5 through 9, which is kind of, again, just linguistically, it's not so obvious in the English, but it is a little, it is at least a soft unit here. So 5 through 9, a fool despises his father's instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is prudent. In the house of the righteous there is much treasure, but trouble befalls the income of the wicked. The lips of the wise spread knowledge, not so the hearts of fools. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is acceptable to him. The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he loves him who pursues righteousness. All right. So a lot going on in this section. If we look at verse 5 in some detail, a fool despises his father's instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is prudent. I mean, we've had this thought as just a repeating thought woven all the way throughout the Proverbs. You have to be willing to be corrected if you're going to be wise. And that is counterintuitive because, you know, when you grow up, you think wisdom is not needing to be corrected. It's just <laughs> so bizarre, but it's how it's written into us as fallen human beings that if I'm wise, I will, no one will ever correct me. And that's just not how it works. In fact, that's the opposite of how it works. The wise always are ready to receive correction. All right. Um, then on to six. In the house of the righteous, there is much treasure. And of course, that's not necessarily mammon. <laughs> but all kinds of treasure, true treasure that God gives to us, the riches of his word, etc., etc. But trouble befalls the income, the mammon, of the wicked. So even what the wicked have is uncertain. And even the material things in which they place their joy and their trust are uncertain. OK. 
Okay, the lips of the wise spread knowledge. So again, reflecting on this theme of how you use your tongue, your lips, your mouth. Is it for the dissemination of knowledge? Not so the hearts of fools. You can kind of see the beautiful asymmetry here of the lips versus the hearts. There's nothing to be overread there. It's just kind of an asymmetry. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination of the Lord, which is a pretty astonishing thing and important for us to grasp because the sacrifice is the very thing that God commands. Hey, do this sacrifice. But if they do the sacrifice and have a wicked heart, God doesn't say, oh, well, you did the sacrifice, so I've got to let you off the hook. So this, this actually is interwoven throughout uh, the Old Testament period after the, the prophets, David and the Psalms, the prophets lament this, that the wicked in Israel, some of whom are just crass idolaters, think they're in good standing with Yahweh because they keep offering the sacrifices. He said, do X. If I do X, he's happy with me. Who cares if I go out and worship Baal or live however I want to live or persecute the poor or whatever, right? So this is a, this is a common mantra in the preaching of the prophets. They're constantly against this. And like, so um, burnt offerings you did not desire, that kind of thing. Like, what on earth does that mean? Didn't, isn't he the one that said, do these burnt offerings? Why does he not desire them? Because he wants a broken heart and a contrite spirit. He wants true righteousness within. He doesn't want you to go on in your godless wickedness and just check these boxes off as if you're somehow in good standing with him. You're not. And here, this proverb comes right out and says, not only are you not in good standing, it's an abomination to him. Because you're doing something deceitful and God is not mocked. He sees what's going on, right? So this um, takes place, this very dynamic is recognized at the time of the Reformation because in the Western Church, what has eclipsed the doctrine of the Lord's Supper as God's gift, and this is my body, this is my blood given for you, is now as it suddenly become this thing of like, let's take it and sacrifice it to God, let's make it our work, let's give it to God. The whole thing has become inverted. And then in the Western church, you've got this, this thing going on that you've got people who say, I'm going to live like a total scoundrel, and I'm going to pay a priest to sacrifice the mass for me, and I can go on being a scoundrel as long as the priest is sacrificing as fast as I'm sinning. So the Latin phrase for this is ex opera or ex opere operato, by the working of the work itself. And it, we reject that. It has its Old Testament and New Testament kind of thing going on. And we reject that. So this too is Paul's warning in 1 Corinthians 11 that you can't pursue sin and just remember your baptism. You can't pursue sin and just keep coming to the Lord's table. Paul's whole argument is that the Old Testament people had spiritual food, just like you do, and had a baptism through Moses in the Red Sea, just as you have a baptism. Nonetheless, they displeased the Lord, even though they had these sacraments, they displeased the Lord because their hearts were far from Him, and they engaged in idolatry and immorality. So then these things are written for us, Paul says, that we would not do the same. 
So there is a sense in which the sacraments can be, even the sacraments themselves, for crying out loud, can be abused if we have hearts that are impenitent and hardened against God and we're just trying to play him. All right, so that then is a very important concept that the sacrifice of the wicked, the very thing that God tells them to do, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. But the prayer, here you see this kind of asymmetry, the sacrifice versus the prayer, but the same concept. The prayer of the upright is acceptable to him. Now, does that mean you have to be upright enough to be heard by God? None of us would ever be upright enough to be heard by God. <laughs> we pray that, uh, you know, we daily sin much. And we pray that God would not reject our prayers on account of that. So, what it means to be upright in this context is to be penitent. To be repentant. To be in a state where you confess your sins, you acknowledge them. No matter how weak you are, you're turning away from them. And you're united with God in his law and in the gospel that he gives and that you receive. Okay, so that's the idea of the prayer of the upright being acceptable to him. All right, and then parallel here. 9 with 8, the way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. Remember, there's just the way of the wicked and the way of the righteous, the way of the wise, the way of the fool, the way of life, the way of death. These are always binary and mutually exclusive. And it's no different here. The way of the wicked, the foundation of wickedness is unbelief. The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. But he loves him who pursues righteousness. Now, I think this is just so great. Such a great line. Because he doesn't here say, he loves him who is righteous. And I think that there's this great little meditation we can have on just the language that he loves him who pursues righteousness. So the sinner who acknowledges he's a sinner, but nonetheless pursues righteousness, that's something God loves. An abomination is like the most hateful, detestable, unclean, gross thing you can think of. That's like an abomination. I've kind of gotten over it now because I've been in California longer than I've been anywhere else, but the first time I had to shovel up a dead rat, that was an abomination unto me. (laughs) Just disgusting. My skin crawled. You know, and it's like, blah. And now, you know, you just realize that's a sort of a routine out here. Uh, but an abomination gives you that sort of visceral shock of like, just gross. You can think of two um, innate, inborn things that are abominations, like written into our hearts that we easily identify as abominations. But then through socialization and enculturation, they begin to be not abominations in our hearts anymore. So, I mean, one obvious example is if you go up to any little kiddo and say, how about a boy and a boy kissing and getting married? That's disgusting. That's an abomination. It just doesn't make any sense. 
through enough enculturation and socialization, that goes away. That's an eroding of the conscience, a destruction of the natural knowledge of God within. But we should be repulsed by same-sex attraction uh, because it's an abomination. We should be, you know, appalled by all kinds of things as abominations. Um, that we're not, that we're deadened to, that our hearts have uh, changed. I mean, in fact, all sin is like that, but especially egregious sins. And I'm not trying to peck specifically on that one sin. It's just the one being shoved down our throat in our culture right now as sort of the figurehead of this whole rainbow religion, this whole false religion um, that is invading our our people's hearts and minds here in this country. So um, that idea that something is an abomination is detestful to you on an almost visceral level. So then what is an abomination to God? The sacrifice of the wicked, the wicked who pretends like he's holy but is hell-bent on remaining wicked. Or the way of the wicked. So his whole life, his way of thinking, his way of being, it's an abomination to the Lord. Here's one example too. It's not doesn't use the exact word hate, but where we make the distinction that God loves the sinner but hates the sin, it's not exactly biblically accurate to say that. Because the person himself, the sinner himself is hateful in the sight of God. The person who rejects God in stubborn unbelief becomes hateful to God or in this case becomes an abomination. It's the same thing. An abomination is just hatred and disgust in the strongest possible terms. Okay, so as Christians then, we are those who have been given the righteousness of Christ all our sins covered in the perfect robe of his righteousness and our trust is in him and in that righteousness and then he sets before us the righteous path and as we pursue that he loves us so that's the idea of he the lord loves him who pursues righteousness So we are a delight. We are something that the Lord looks upon with the opposite of abomination. He looks at it like it's a tender, wonderful, joyful. uh, In Peter, it's a graceful thing in the sight of God. It's really an incredible thing. I mean, to think of, to, to wake up in the morning, make the sign of the cross, and fight off the despair and the nihilism that is all around us in the spirit of this age of, oh, it's meaningless, oh, it does, you know, it's terrible, it's, nothing's gonna, nothing good's going to happen, God doesn't care anyway. Um, if I do good, I'll probably get punished for it. We can just sort of wipe all of that away and say, no, even the smallest act of kindness, even something so small as giving a cup of cold water in the name of Jesus, is uh, will not re- will not lose its reward. Is going to be rewarded. That is to say, the Lord delights in it, and so we can live every day as we make the sign of the cross and as we wake up. We can live every day and say, in what I mean, even if we want to be humble, just in what small ways can I delight the Lord? In what small ways can I be faithful to what he's 
given me to be faithful to. And that's a much better pursuit than how can I live for myself? How can I uh, just increase myself? How can I live as if I mattered most and God didn't matter at all? Because those are ultimately the two antitheses. All right, so that's that section. Let me see if you have any thoughts or any reflections you want to talk about. I might have talked it to death there at the end. I couldn't help but think of that horrifying scene in The Godfather when Michael Corleone has his child baptized while he has commissioned his henchmen to go around killing people right and left. What a scene. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just the hypocrisy. Yeah. When we uh, looked at eight, um, the thing that popped into my mind was Cain and Abel, where they are mm-hmm. offering the sacrifices mm-hmm. and, and God accepts Abel's but not Cain's. Yeah, right. I think it's the author of Hebrews who says that um, Abel offers it in faith and that thus then Cain does not. So, yeah, I think that that's a great example, great biblical example of the sacrifice of the wicked being an abomination of the Lord, but the prayer of the upright being acceptable to him. Yeah, thank you for that. I see a hand up front here. I think you said it already. But um, in 9 where it says, he loves him who pursues righteousness, that's not our own righteousness, it's the righteousness of Christ. And we can't have righteousness separate from Christ, right? Mm -hmm. So it's right to read it as who pursues Christ. Yeah, I think that that's true. If we were to parse this out, like obviously pursuing faith in Christ, in Christ keeping ourselves faithful, you know, in Christ, that kind of thing, um, that would be like one side, and then the other side would be pursuing what we call sanctification. So, like, okay, how would Christ have me live? How does He instruct me to live? Right. And that shows, I mean, when you obey somebody, you're showing that you love them. I, let's say that that's the proper hierarchy, the proper authority. When you obey someone, it's showing that you love them. And so if you love Christ, you're going to seek to obey him. And your obedience is showing him that you love him. If you, uh, if you don't love someone, why, you're not going to obey them. You know, I, I mean, in that, in the sense, I'm, I'm reflecting here on Christ, right? Like, if you don't love Christ, you're not going to obey Christ. You're going to pursue some other end. And that end ultimately is just your, yourself. I mean, those are kind of, it's the dichotomy. You're going to pursue the God and the things of God, or you're going to pursue yourself. Here we're talking big picture, we're talking like the whole person. Yeah. Okay, ready to go on a little further? So 10 and 10, 11, and 12 are just kind of there. I don't believe they really form a unit. The next unit will be like 13 through 17. So 10, 11, and 12, there is severe discipline for him who forsakes the way. And it's true. You think of that young man in Corinth that situation that Paul has to address where there's this you know, pronounced, public, impenitent uh, sexual immorality going on. 
And Paul uses, ends up using the language of hand such a man over to Satan that he may learn not to blaspheme. That's the language of excommunication. So Paul's saying this person, even though they continue to come to church and you continue to commune them, this is not right. And this should not be done. So that's an example of the severe discipline for him who forsakes the way. This man was once in the way, but he forsook it. And so there's severe discipline. Now, it appears in 2 Corinthians that the man has repented. And Paul instructs the Corinthians then to welcome him back in. And so that's the goal of the severe discipline. It's when one forsakes the way that through the severe discipline he'd be brought back into the way. Does that make sense? Okay. So obviously I gave a concrete example, a, a sort of sub-example of the principle. The severe discipline can take all manner of forms. Obviously, God's not limited. So that's someone who's on the way and then forsakes the way, which I suppose in another sense answers the question of can you fall away? Obviously, you can. You can be on the way and then forsake the way and then face severe discipline on that account. Okay, so whoever forsakes the way receives severe discipline, whoever hates reproof will die. And so the parallel to draw is the hating of reproof and the forsaking of the way. Which means that to walk on the way is to receive constant reproof, constant correction. That's one more reason why God gives us one day out of the week to come and hear his word and why it is a day of obligation for every Christian. Because, you know, you say, well, God hasn't changed. Yeah, but you have. And you have in many and various ways changed since you last met with him in his house with the rest of his family. And one of those ways in which you might have changed is you might have gone in a direction that requires his fatherly reproof. How are you going to get that? Through his word. (laughs) But if you say, ah, God doesn't change, I'm good, I don't need to hear that reproof or correction, well, now you're on your way to apostatizing, to forsaking the way altogether, to hating the reproof of his word, etc. And ultimately then that leads to death, as this proverb plainly states. Okay, tie, oh yes, I see a hand in the back. This one, um, what I'm seeing is the stuff we find in the New Testament about uh, excommunication. Yeah. You know, if, you know, the first thing you're supposed to do is reprove the person and if they don't listen or follow it, then they're out of the way. Yeah, yeah, depending on the nature of the sin being committed and the kind of reproof and like Matthew 18 stuff, sometimes there's a process, sometimes it's uh, an immediate recognition. I think it's good to meditate because that's ultimately the fulfillment of these scriptures is the New Testament and the church and where we are today, so... Yeah, thank you for pointing that out. All right, anything else we want to touch on? So then next, tying in with this idea of forsaking the way and dying, 
we have Sheol and Abaddon. So Sheol is often the grave or death. Abaddon is destruction or corruption. So Sheol and Abaddon lie open before the Lord. How much more the hearts of the children of man. So the, the Lord sees even into the, uh, humanly speaking, the veil of death is impenetrable. What happens when you die? What happens, um, what is indicated by uh, the corruption of the body? Where is the soul and in what state is that soul? These things are impenetrable to us, but the Lord sees through them easily. Sheol and Abaddon lie open before the Lord. How much more the hearts of the children of man? So, I mean, all of this as Christians we know, I think it's second nature, is that you're not going to pull one over on God. And, you know, obviously we can, on account of the sinful nature that still remains in us, get all tangled up in our thoughts. And all tangled up in self-deception. And even there's a sense in which just our fallen subjectiveness, it's like... This is what I think is true, but who knows? (laughs) I mean, there's kind of humility that sinks in over time where you just go, as best as I can tell, based on the data and evidence I have, this is what's right, and I'm called to render a judgment, and I've rendered the judgment, but I'm not, and my my conscience is clear, I'm not thereby justified because there is one who's higher than I and sees clearly and sees purely, and I submit my judgment right or wrong to him. That's the proper attitude of a Christian. We recognize that God sees our hearts all the way through. And, you know, does he see our hearts and think, that'd be a wonderful place for me to come and live? I hope that this person offers me their heart so I can come and dwell in that luxurious mansion. No. No, out of the heart of man proceeds all manner of wickedness and filth, as Jesus himself teaches. There's an analogy between the incarnation. Is Jesus born into a sanitary, pristine hospital in Orange County? Is Jesus born into a king's palace where everything is plush and gold and fresh. Now, he's born into a manger, which if you ever have animals anywhere around, you know they're not potty trained. And I think it's Luther who says that his birth into the stall surrounded by straw and dung is analogous to his being born in our hearts through faith. It's straw and dung that he surrounds himself in. So this, I give you my heart, (laughs) is not quite the glorious treasure we think it is. Uh, Please come into my heart. You're welcome. Uh, it's not quite the right, uh, the right way to look at it. So the Lord um, knows our hearts, sees our hearts, and yet in his love for sinners, he deigns to dwell, he deigns to enter, and he deigns to be born even in us, filthy as though we may be, and then to endure, to remain. You know That echo from last week's gospel where Peter says, I'm a sinful man, depart from me. Uh, But the Lord doesn't depart. He's come for sinners. And so we can be certain that no matter how great or how many our sins, uh, no matter how frustrated with our sins we get or tired of them we get, uh, the Lord still abides with us and encourages us to 
remember that uh, our sins are forgiven. He's taking care of that. And to reorient ourselves then into moving forward in his grace and moving forward to serve our neighbor and please him in this life. Okay. So he knows the hearts of the children of man if he can see into death and hell. Twelve, a scoffer does not like to be reproved. He will not go to the wise. Yeah, and that is probably actually some of why people don't go to church. I know this is a subset of this. But they don't go to church because they know they're going to hear the truth. And they know they're going to hear wisdom, and they don't want to hear it. It's just a simple fact. They, they know they're going to hear God's word, and, they're, and it's going to conflict with their thoughts, and it's going to conflict with how they want to behave or how they want to allow other people to behave, and they don't want to be there. They're, you know, this, and the church, really, we, we're going to have to come to terms with this. I think it, eventually it will be easy for us to come to terms with this because we'll have no other choice, but we're not going to be winsome enough. Our prob- the church in America shrinking does not have to do with a lack of winsomeness or a lack of technique, or if we just utilize this strategy or another, suddenly the people would like us and want to come to church. Or if we just had the right brand of coffee and the right uh, banner out front or the right welcome center, or, you know, if Rody would just shave that beard, the church would start growing. <laughs> and it's just, I mean, at a certain point, it's all nonsense. We have to realize that the world hates us. And will not come precisely because they hate Christ and they hate his word and they hate his wisdom. It's not ignorance. It's not like, oh, yeah, I don't know what they're going to say in there. No, they know what, they're, what we, we say and they don't like it. So we have to come to terms with that. And we have to come to terms with the fact that the world is filled with scoffers who don't like to be reproved. And to try to cater to a scoffer is like complete foolishness. So he will not go to the wise. And it doesn't mean we write those people off. We, we pray, we preach the word, we evangelize, we do all the stuff we're supposed to do, engage in serious conversation, but we really have to realize the spiritual dynamics. And we're not going to solve those spiritual dynamics by being extra nice and taking care of all of the aesthetics. Make sense? Okay. <laughs> All right, so that's the end of this random little collection, 10, 11, 12. Any thought? Oh, I can't take your thoughts. We're a minute over. All right, I'll get your thoughts next week as we carry on with chapter 15. The Lord be with you. Amen.